Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, co-founder of 10 by 9 along with Podrigo Tuma, and we started 10 by 9 in Belfast in 2011. 10 by 9 is a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes to tell a true story from their own life. On this podcast, we have a few questions for you. Are you okay with nudity? What part did you play in the pantomime? How was the honeymoon? We have three amazing stories and there's always a few mini-stories thrown in. First up, here's one from the Belfast Archives. It was May 2017 and the theme was changing. Take it away, Paul Sloan. Be warned though, there is nudity. Swiping right is a normal formality today. Swipe right, swipe left, swipe right, swipe left. You've got a match. If the conversation isn't worthy of Tumblr, Imager, or Facebook publicity and ridicule, then it's going well. You arrange a meeting, hang out, and suss each other out. Other dates I'd been on involved stories about shit men in the area, uh, tragic prose about ex-boyfriends and ex-girlfriends, and a schematic drawing of ventilation hygiene in hospitals. Uh, architectural engineers are a fun sort of people. Uh, I had given up hope uh, until I got this match, and it was cool. I knew this had to be different than everything else, and it was, and it changed me. Of course, standing naked and crying will change anyone. <laughs> the days leading up to our meeting had uh, brought a spring to my step. Our virtual conversation had a tangible humour, and occasionally I'd wonder if we'd pass on campus. And my excitement continued into the date. The conversation was exciting and easygoing. She, Lexi, was stunning, confident, and intelligent. She ran rings around me with ideas, and I would do anything to keep listening to her talk. So I was all for it when she asked, do you want to go camping? Yeah, when? And she looked at her phone and said, we'd have to wait until Danny, the guitarist, had finished his set before we'd leave. Tonight, I asked her. Lexi, my date, my Tinder date, who I had just met at this bar, had said this. I was all at once intimidated at the idea and attracted to this headstrong and brave woman. I'm sorry, do you have class tomorrow? Can't you go? Uh, I have a seminar at six tomorrow night. Great, and just like that, she decided that I was going. Where, I asked, oh, we have a place. We? There'll be a few of us. How are you with nudity? She asked in a casual tone. <laughs> I smiled, yeah. I actually never asked myself that question before. An hour later, we drove along Pennsylvania back roads into the night. Light pollution from our town waned at our backs and the stars came out in front and above to welcome us into a natural state of affairs. We pulled up outside an old farmhouse. Lexi said they were cool with people camping so long as they took care of the place. We grabbed our things from her RAV4 and I followed along a path she marked with her torchlight. We descended a slope, walked a fallen log across a stream and ascended to the campfire where a small group of people smoked, drank and played a little guitar. I sat in a stunned silence about the place and made occasional comments related to my esteemed masculinity. I'm actually not sure if it was an attempt to intimidate potential organ harvesters, as I had no way to escape, uh, or if I'd managed to get myself into a dick measuring contest on my own. <laughs> I did my best to keep quiet from then on. A pretty radical dude, actually, uh, who I called Peter, but that was never his name, told me about sustainable activism and the wind. Somehow I related this to a quote from Star Trek and we moved to discuss the treatment of Deep Space Nine and Voyager's Captain Catherine Janeway. 
It was a profound conversation and we sat together for a moment to watch the fire. Do you want to go caving? Lexi appeared from nowhere and pulled me off to the darkness with her friend Paul towards the cave entrance. Paul and Lexi talked in a language of caves I didn't understand and I wondered why we had chosen our current spot to stop for this conversation. Where was the cave entrance? From their hand signals, I looked down between two boulders and realized this doggy door-sized hole in front of me was the entrance. I climbed down towards it and squatted to get a closer look. It had to be, it had to be bigger than that, but it wasn't. I stood up and turned to ask how they expected to get down into the entrance when I realized that the two of my new friends were as naked as the day they were born. <laughs> Paul answered, feet first, turn at the corner, easy enough from there. Right, I responded and looked as far above his shoulders as I could. <laughs> I completely missed every hand signal and I had no idea going in. Come on, said Lexi, and I paused for a moment and wondered what my mum would think of this. <laughs> She'd certainly like Lexi's positive and independent attitude. I thought, like all good guilt-filled Catholics, that my deceased grandparents, grandparents, parents, parents judged me while I made my decision. About halfway into the cave, I decided that they would have encouraged it. I managed to get about 10 feet into the cave before I stopped and let them know that I'd wait this out. I was scared and I was claustrophobic. I got dressed and went back to the fire, a little vulnerable. When they came back, Lexi with a rush, rusted machete in hand, I panicked. They were after my organs. <laughs> I'm taking them to the pond, she said. Great, I thought there's a pond for sacrifices. I stood up to put up some sort of fight and she walked past me and we headed away from the camp and deeper into the forest. We got lost on the way to the pond. Brambles got thicker and thicker until we backtracked and ended up finding our way. She had put the machete to good use and she'd cut a thicket like Moses part of the Red Sea but overuse had meant the wrong way. Lexi's legs bled from the bramble thorns while we walked barefoot on wet grass to a tree line. She didn't seem to mind it at all. When we came to a clearing, in sight was a ridge that marked the edges of the pond so big it didn't classify as a pond to me, but it wasn't big enough to be a lake. It was a plague. <laughs> I stood while Lexi climbed up the ridge and I looked up. There was nothing in the sky but a natural state of things with poked holes in a black canvas sky for starlight and swaths of colour, displaying just how deep space went. Before I could take it all in, she called, Come on up! I followed her up the ridge and along the bank. At an unmarked point, she stopped and dropped the machete. In a flash, she was naked again and swimming in the pond. I looked up to take it all in a little more of the sky and decided to try to swim. About halfway in, water up to my knees, I decided I couldn't swim, and again, I looked up to find a memory. I was in Balamina the last time I'd seen a sky like this. Now, naked and afraid, but with all my organs, I realized how much I missed home after six years in the United States. I cried for the people I missed and the people I would never see again. Lexi hugged me for all the time in the world. In the morning, I woke up to singing birds. Everyone else had gone. We lay in the fallen leaves in our sleeping bags and we kissed. We grabbed our things and left. We pulled into a cafe on the way back to town. We ate breakfast in our bare feet. Uh, sure, who isn't okay with a bit of nudity? Quite a chat up line. Thanks to Paul Sloan for that. Next, a story told in Belfast at the Black Box in March 2019. Here's Eliza McCafferty on a dairy legend, her grandfather, James McCafferty, the man with whom she felt most welcome. Ed Sullivan welcomed my grandfather and his choir. 
the Little Gaelic Singers as the first act on his show on 28th of October 1956. Elvis Presley was on after them and wore a green jacket in their honour in his second segment. My grandfather liked him. He told us around 80 million tuned in for Elvis. He and his choir were invited back in the same series, a rare occurrence for any act. Elvis was on again too, only next time he was shot from the waist up. <laughs> we lived next door to my grandfather, like the Boswells and Bread, on Francis Street in Derry. Frank Carson called it Frantic Street for the huge numbers of singers and musicians that my grandfather welcomed for classes. The pupils called him James, but he was Papa to me. I went to his singing classes like a lot of people, from I was reaching up to the keys on the piano to when I was taller than the piano itself. On it was a framed invite from JFK to play at the White House, and this is probably responsible for my fascination with all things Kennedy. He was also made an honorary chief of a Native American tribe, and this is one of the reasons why we always cheered on the Indians in cowboy movies. <laughs> Part of the ritual of the singing classes was doing the pantomime in St. Collins Hall. While my brother James was walking up and down our stairs, checking which ones would creak for Santa, I was at rehearsals. At the start of the panto each night, at eight o'clock, a voice would say, ladies and gentlemen, your musical director for the night, Mr. James McCafferty. And my grandfather and Bibb and Tupper would run down the stairs at the left of the stage with an Alan Shearer wave under a spotlight and start up the band. He wrote the music arrangements for the band and the singers, and there'd always be a hit from the time for the audience to join in. I remember one year it was Joe Dodge's Shut Up Like A Face, and another it was Stevie Wonder's I Just Called To Say I Love You. Every evening, my mother would do my makeup with a pan stick, and the smell of Pond's cold cream takes me straight there, sitting upright on a chair, sucking in my cheeks for her to do my blusher, then my hair, while two of my brothers watched Tales of the Golden Monkey, and the youngest one ran up and down the living room, copying Daley Thompson in an ad for Lucasade, shouting, Detom, Detom. <laughs> my mother would make stunning outfits, as she's from a long line of seamstresses, and has an eye for costume, having been a singer, an Irish ballet dancer, an actress in former life. My munchkin dress was my favourite. I can't remember what song we sang that year, but typically there'd be one scene with a cast of a hundred girls on stage singing one song. Another year we were fairies, all in white, singing with the fairy queen, Patricia Sheridan, a beautiful lady with a beautiful voice and short cropped dark hair, stunning eyes, and who wore a glittery white dress, a Demonte Tiara and blonde. We all sang the Everly Brothers, All I Have to Do Is Dream. I remember clearly every night when the curtains opened on our scene, the audience gasped and the sight. One of my favourite photos from the time was taken at home about to go out to the show. I'm in a pristine white dress and holding my youngest brother Patrick's hand. He is wearing only a droopy nappy and baffies and his boggin having been crawling on a floor that needed to be carpeted. We look like the shepherdess in the chimney sweep. <laughs> there aren't many photos of me on stage, for towards the end of the song, some of the girls would push in front of me. I remember my mommy saying to me why I allowed it, but I shied away from the limelight. Truth was, I was happiest out of sight in the orchestra pit, with the lights off in the house and the audience hushed, 
I was happy sitting on an instrument case on the floor beside the musicians with boxes of cigarettes that stuck out of handbags and that were used as paperweights on music stands. I was happy because I was sitting near Papa conducting and my daddy playing trombone. I didn't want to be anywhere else. When I was older, I was proud as punch when Papa asked me to turn the music for him at both the Dairy and London Dairy Fishmen. I remember one afternoon the white cloudy sky spilling light through the mullioned windows into the minor hall in the Guildhall and me sitting by Papa's side at the piano, turning the music while he accompanied a male quartet competition. I thought I was it, as the competitors were older lads who I thought were so cool. Our, favorite, our house's favourite times were when Papa would come to ours for Sunday lunch and we'd all watch Gazetta Football Italia after. They were happy days, but the happiest memories for me, my brothers and my cousins, are from a holiday in Dahoma at my other grandfather's mobile home. Papa was card dealer for marathon card sessions where he dealt his cards and names such as Tallulah, Blousey, Fat Sam and other characters from Boxing Alone in games that lasted well into the long summer evenings as the sky outside stayed light over a silvery sea that splashed onto Ackle in the distance. Many know of Papa's talents as an arranger, a conductor, a teacher and an accompanist. When I strayed key, he would change keys. He'd transpose huge pieces of music in his head to the point that most people took this for granted and would expect other accompanists to do this. He was as modest as he was generous. However, it is his life as a musician that I respect the most. In a short period of time, Papa lost his wife, his, his mother, his only sibling and his son-in-law, but he continued as musical director for the show at those times, getting the audience to sing, can you imagine, to I just called to say I love you and getting the crack going. This was only part of his work too. He continued with other commitments concerts, TV, and classes with grace and dignity. My boyfriend is chuffed to bits that I was in the Pantagoras. He and his family always sat in the balcony, and he has many, many happy memories of the Pantagoras, as they were a big part of his childhood Christmases. Many of the chorus went on to be stars in their own right, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't a great voice, although my parents would be down the back shouting, oh yes, she did. <laughs> I had one note in my head that I used for every song, but my grandfather was a gifted teacher and got me to sing from the top of my head and sing in tune. My wee brother, checking out the creaky stars, stairs, inherited his name Six Talent. It is uncanny the resemblance when he conducts, even his shoulders, it is like seeing a ghost. I had the privilege of being in Papa's company when he died. He died as the clock struck 8pm. And I have no doubt that he was starting up the band as the big MC in the sky welcomed, saying, Ladies and gentlemen, your musical director for the night, Mr. James McCafferty. Thanks very much, Eliza. That was a lovely story. I actually had singing lessons with James McCaffrey, that's true. And, um, however, I do have a bone to pick, read the Derry Pantomime. <laughs> I was offered a part in the Derry Pantomime. This is a true story when I was in P6. 
and they were doing Babes in the Wood, and I was going to be one of the babes. <laughs> the boy babe. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but then they decided it was a pantomime, so they were actually going to have two females playing the boy and the girl. So I was dumped from that role. As consolation, I was offered the role of one of the seven dwarves. <laughs> Grumpy. To be fair, Grumpy had all the best lines, and while obviously it was a struggle to get in character, I have moved on. Over to Australia now, and to our friends at 10 by 9 Adelaide. The theme was kindness. It was April the 11th, 2019. Here's Dean Lambert. We were on our first day of our honeymoon, having been married in Mount Gambier the previous day. It was three days before Christmas, 1968. That day we were travelling from Hamilton to Wye River. Where's Wye River? Wye River is on the Great Ocean Road between Apollo Bay and Lawn. In those days, Wye River had a pub, a small general store, a caravan park, a few shacks, a rocky beach and isolation, and not much else. We were booked into the pub for eight days and we were as excited as newlyweds could be. We had decided to take a devious route through the beach forest in the Otway National Park. As we neared the apex of the, uh, the Otway Ranges, the old Hillman minks gave a bit of a skip in the back wheels, followed by a deep metallic growling noise. Not a good thing to experience on an isolated road on a Sunday afternoon. I waited until I was at the top of a rather steep hill before daring to stop and inspect underneath the car. There was an ominous trickle of oil coming from the diff. Not good. The nearest town of any note was Apollo Bay and that was about 20 kilometres away. We decided to try and make it. I quickly worked out that when the car was in gear, the growling, grinding sound was considerably worse than when out of gear and coasting down a hill. So we coasted rather than drove. Fortunately, I only had to engage the gears in the diff to get over the occasional rises. It was a bit nerve-wracking, and it was our first crisis as a married couple. We were still talking to each other civilly, when we finally limped into Apollo Bay. What are your chances of finding a mechanic in a garage in a country town at 3.30 on a Sunday afternoon, the Sunday before Christmas? <laughs> Our luck held out. The one garage in the main drag was still open. The proprietor mechanic in his uniform of greasy overalls came out to inspect the car. He told us what we already thought we knew. Your diff's buggered. <laughs> and it's a major repair job. He asked us where we were headed and why. But I suspect he'd already guessed. Something to do with the stuff on the back of the car. And then the first act of kindness. There's no point in, in putting in a new diff. Too expensive. I'll see if I can get a second-hand one for the wreckers in Geelong or perhaps Colac. Even then, it might be a hard task getting them to send it to Apollo Bay, given that it's nearly Christmas. But I'll see if I can lean on them as a favour. We then asked if there was any way to get to Wye River. 
You're in luck, he said. There's a bus to Geelong at about five o'clock. But see them at the newsagent a couple of doors down. So we unloaded our suitcase and trudged to the newsagent. Yes, there was a bus that went past Wye River, but being only a couple of days before Christmas, it was fully booked. It looked like our luck had finally run out. Our disappointment must have been obvious, and perhaps a bit of confetti that had spilt out of the suitcase added to the pathos. <laughs> Hang on a bit, love, said the lady behind the counter. I'll talk to the bus driver. Our second bit of kindness was about to descend upon us. A little later, she said, the driver said the bus will not be full until he gets to lawn, but there is only one seat left. Some honeymoon, with one of us in Wye River, the other one in Apollo Bay. <laughs> but she and the bus driver were having a bit of fun. The bus driver said that one of the passengers was getting off at Wangara, about 10 k's down the road, and then there'll be two seats. So, if you don't mind, one of you could sit on your suitcase in the aisle when he gets, uh, until he gets off. Imagine a bus driver doing that these days. This was the third act of kindness experienced all in one day. By the time we got on the bus, all our fellow, fellow passengers seemed to know our story. At Wye River, we were farewelled and wished all the best for the future by a busload of kind-hearted strangers. The homely manager at the pub was very attentive. She wanted to know the full story and then wanted to make sure that we were okay and asked whether there was anything she could do for us to help settle in. We had to accept that in a small hamlet like Wye River, the arrival of honeymooners could generate a bit of interest, especially in the context of our car adventure. Unsurprisingly, everyone visiting the pub seemed to know about our experience and it became an entree for getting conversation going between us and the locals. But this also led to another unexpected kindness. It was Christmas Eve and we, along with a few of the locals, were having a glass or two of Christmas cheer. Something came up about going to church on Christmas Day. The manager wanted to know what brand we belonged to and then came back a little later to say that Mass was at 10 o'clock in Apollo Bay. And then she said, old Dougie over there, with a bit of a nod, will drive you in. Now, we'd seen and said g'day to old Dougie a few times. He was of indeterminate age, grizzled, a little daggy, missing a few teeth, and perpetually hunched over a beer. He didn't look like a church-going type, but who can tell? We bought him a beer and made arrangements to meet him in the morning. True to his word, old Dougie rolled up in his old, battered, noisy, two-door ute. It reflected his character. We squeezed together on the old bench seat. We chatted away above the noise and rattle of the old ute until we reached the church. When we stopped, we said to Doug, aren't you coming in? Nah, don't believe in it. I'll stay with the ute. How good was that? He'd put himself out on Christmas Day to provide a couple of strangers a round trip of about 45 k's just so they could go to church. <laughs> and he wouldn't take money uh, for fuel. Just buy me a beer was a predictable response. 
Such generous kindness was embarrassing. We kept in constant touch with the garage man who progressively told us that yes, he was able to source a second-hand diff from Colac, and yes, it arrived on a bus, and eventually, yes, the car is fixed and ready to go. And then the hard bit. He gave us the cost. Now, between the two of us, we did not have much money. We'd saved a bit and received a little as wedding presents. Our honeymoon at Wye River was our big expense. After our honeymoon, we had to pack up all our worldly possessions, which weren't much, and head back to Sydney. So we need money for the trip and money to find at least some temporary accommodation in Sydney. In budgeting terms, we had a fiscal crisis. <laughs> no credit cards in those days. There was only one solution. We had to cut our honeymoon short and save on accommodation. We approached the manager with some trepidation as it was peak season and told her that we wanted to leave three days early. She said, I've been half expecting it and it was no problem at all. A little later, she knocked on the door and said that she had arranged with old Dougie to take us back to Apollo Bay so that we could pick up our car and be on our way. And would we have a goodbye drink on her? When we got to the garage at Apollo Bay and had been given the repair bill, I could see from the amounts for the spare parts and the transport, but there was just a token amount for labour. More kindness. Honeymoons are remembered for all sorts of things, but for us, one of our most enduring memories is the extraordinary kindness that was shown to two young strangers. What a wonderful start to married life for Dean Lambert. Anyway, thanks to Dean and to Eliza McCafferty and Paul Sloan and the casting director of the Dairy Pantomime. And of course, thanks for listening. 10 by 9 is always free, but if you want to help cover our costs, you can donate on our website, 10 by 9com And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Our theme tune comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, sourced at Facebook Sounds. For now, bye-bye.